Welcome to the grand opening of the Deep Reporting Podcast with Rex Carlin. Before we get started, I want to briefly explain what we'll be doing with this show so you can fully experience these episodes. Each episode, I'll speak with a long-form reporter about an interesting piece they've written. The criteria for the journalists I reach out to to be on the show will consist of passing two tests. Am I interested in the topic of the story, and do I believe my audience will be interested in the topic of the story? We'll discuss not only the article or story itself, but also what kind of work went into researching, investigating, and writing the piece before it ever went to print. What we won't do is summarize the story in full during the podcast, so I strongly advise going and reading the article we're discussing before you start listening to the podcast episode. That way you'll have a much easier time following along. Other than that, I don't really have any parameters for the show, and I hope that loose structure intrigues you as much as it interests me. The first two episodes being released each cover a hot-button topic at the top of everyone's minds both during the 2016 election cycle and into today. Episode 1 features the ongoing legal battle in South Texas between the federal government and landowners along the border with Mexico. The Taking, which was co-published by ProPublica and the Texas Tribune, covers the initial southern border wall project from a decade ago and the problems that still linger from it today, including botched land grabs by the government, rushed transactions including inaccurate land valuations during eminent domain proceedings, incomplete work on the wall itself, and landowners feeling let down by their own government. I discussed the story with T. Christian Miller of ProPublica, who co-wrote the report with two Texas Tribune reporters to get his take on the story, the aftermath, and what the situation is today down in South Texas. So with that, let's jump into episode one of Deep Reporting with Rex Carlin. When I read this, the first thing I thought of as I was going down this series of stories, the the main story you guys had, and then the follow-ups, it just screams like this land grab by the government was just completely botched. And I guess the first question for you is, after you guys reported on this and researched this and everything, was this an act of incompetence or was this an act of laziness on the part of those involved? I would say um, there's elements of both of those things, but there's an additional structural element to all this where even a uh, really well-intentioned, uh, competent uh, government agent may have um, done some of the same thing as given what the law allows. So one of the things that interested me about the story from the beginning was that there, um, the, the federal government had used its powers of eminent domain in a really aggressive way, um, but, but by all of the research I, I have done, um, that was usually within the confines of what the law, what the law allows. And so the fascinating thing here is that you have this situation where the government comes in, pays all kinds of different amounts of money for similar plots of land, uh, seizes land all up and down uh, the Rio Grande Valley in southern Texas to build this border fence. All of it is completely legal because of the extraordinary powers granted to the feds under their version of eminent domain law. What exactly triggered this investigation on your part? It was uh, joint between uh, you guys at ProPublica and the Texas Tribune. Uh, what, uh, what, what triggered the investigation? I know that must have been a ton of work for you guys to go in and find all this information about the people who own the land along the 
proposed fence line that the government needed to reach out to in order to either obviously purchase the land from them or take it to court so that they could use eminent domain. Yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of a funny story. So the story began um, basically a year ago when uh, we were trying to figure out well, what are different kind of areas to cover. Uh, and of obvious interest at that point in time was the building of the wall. Uh, President Trump had proposed building this enormous wall all across uh, the southern border uh, between the U.S. and Mexico. So that was kind of the initial idea. Um, and I did a couple of stories on that, but as I did these stories, I kept coming across the fact that there was still, there was already a, a border fence built in a lot of this area, and it was done in the 2008 time frame uh, under uh, both President George Bush and, and President uh, Barack Obama, and they had built a much smaller version of what Trump wants to build, and they called it the border fence. And as I was doing stories looking where where the wall might go, where Trump's wall might go, I was looking, I was continually running into the fact that the old border fence from 10 years ago had not been finished. There were still cases that were ongoing from that uh, project. And the general sense when I would talk to people in the area that the border fence had been very poorly done, uh, had had, uh, abused the government's ability to seize land, uh, and that they were worried about this happening again should should uh, the Trump administration come down and begin seizing land, which they're going to have to do if they're going to build a wall in this area, since it's mostly in private, still most of them in private hands. So just that, that continual exposure to, here's an example of what um, might happen if the wall gets built, led uh, me and the Texas Tribune, who are all sort of interested in covering Trump's wall, to kind of take a step back and say, well, let's look at what this looks like exactly, and look, let's, let's kind of be a warning to say, listen, this wasn't done all that well last time. Uh, there's nothing that's been changed in between then and now. So if Trump is going to build a wall in Texas, you will face exact same situations you faced 10 years ago. So to recap just a little bit, you guys said in the stories that you did that there were sort of three general groups of of landowners that were affected by this. There was sort of the group that just took the offer right away. There was the off. There was the group that um, would sort of try to negotiate a higher price for the land without the use of an attorney. And then there was the group that really actually cashed in, and that was those were the people that actually hired some of these high-powered attorneys to go in and vouch and, and fight for them. What what did you guys hear from, from these people on the ground? I mean, I, we, we saw some of the quotes from some of these people, but I mean, as you're talking to someone who, who didn't hire an attorney and just took an offer, I mean, do these people feel screwed by their own government? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the predominant, uh, that's really why we wanted to look back at the previous fence, because we were talking to to many people in that area about what the wall was going to be like. And it continually came back to some phrase along the lines, well, you know, they came down here and they just uh, gave us whatever they wanted to give us and we couldn't do anything. And there was a real sense of disempowerment um, from people who, you know, at the actual time, so at the moment that the fence was being built, uh, when the government land agents came in and were handing out money, um, there was a lot of uh, frustration. Uh, of course, with the idea of the fence, but there wasn't a lot of frustration 
uh, or, or there wasn't as much at least, it wasn't as big, as big an, uh, a big an obstacle uh, with, the, with the payments that were being made. It was only coming to after the payments were being made that people began to look around and see, like, why did this guy get more than I did? Why did this guy get $600,000 and I got uh, $30,000 or $5,000 for very similar land? And that created this real sense of uh, bitterness and a feeling that the government wasn't playing fair. And that's exactly what eminent domain law seeks to avoid. It's, you're supposed to treat everyone equally under the law. That's sort of basic American principles, but it's very well acknowledged in in eminent domain law that you want to be able to take land for the government. The government has completely legitimate reasons to take land um, and building a wall, whether or not you like it or not, is a very legitimate government project. Um, but if you're going to do that, you're supposed to do that fairly. You're supposed to be compensated for your for your land fairly. And this is a case where it wasn't fair, and people knew it wasn't fair, and you have a, sort of a whole um, population in, this, in the Rio Grande Valley uh, that feels burned and um, stung and treated inequitably by Uncle Sam. Is this a scenario where the people down there think, okay, these are just suits in Washington, D.C. making these decisions without necessarily knowing what the situation or circumstance is down here on the ground? And then on top of that, maybe not having the right people involved in making the decisions on how much money to offer? Or was this sort of coordinated, we're going to lowball everybody and just see what happens? Uh, so, I mean, people down there certainly felt like, and this, this applies to not just sort of average, ordinary, you know, people who own homes and, and property, but to like the judge who worked the case and some of the attorneys who worked the case for the government, there was always a distinct feeling that this was being, you know, they were being controlled by a, a 1,500-mile-long screwdriver from Washington, D.C. Uh, that was turning all the, all the cranks uh, down there. Um, and so uh, what you had essentially here was you had Congress sets this deadline. you got to be done building this wall by December 31st, 2008. And then you had basically a, a specialized group of people in the Department of Homeland Security who were, who were tasked with doing that deadline. And that deadline really took over... Uh, was, was the highest priority. And it wasn't the highest priority was not treating people fairly. The highest priority was not getting people, you know, a, um, a proper amount of money for the land they were taking. The highest priority was to get this wall done no matter what. And we have emails and things like that which talk about, like, just get this done um, however you can get it done by. And so that rush then kind of uh, precipitates everything else. So they're not doing, they're not getting titles when they seize land. They're not getting proper measurements of where the land is. Um, they're giving wildly different amounts for different spots of money. Uh, if they get confronted by a lawyer, they're going to make a payoff really quickly because they know the lawyer can tie up in court versus um, somebody who's not quite as sophisticated in legal matters. They know they can pay them some money, and they'll take that uh, because there's a generalized sense in the Rio Grande Valley, which is a historical poverty belt that... Uh, that, you know, the government doesn't care about them, and so the government's going to do what the government's going to do, and just all you can do, basically, is kind of take what's offered and hope that, and then go on with your life. Let's talk a little bit about what you guys say in the story and what sort of, I don't know, maybe this is a regionalized thing that people in the West and the Midwest and, you know, down South in Texas and in more rural areas know to be obvious, but maybe it's one of those things where someone, these lawmakers in D.C. didn't even realize it, uh, water rights. Right. 
Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what happened there? And I mean, that seems based on reading this, that seems like maybe the biggest mess in all of this is they didn't account for water rights when they calculated how much the land was worth. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to focus on that, Rex, because it really is something that people who, are, who live in the West at all, I mean, every state in, in sort of West Mississippi has some kind of water rights or dealing with water rights. And we all know that it's basically it's the value uh, of your land's uh, access to water. Um, and so whether or not you, you – so you have rights – in most Western states, to sell the water that is attached to your property, whether it's a waterfront property or whether it's the well, uh, the water beneath your property. So, and we, everybody knows this, they're valuable. There's huge water wars fought every year in California, Nevada, Colorado, uh, about getting access to water. So when the, when the federal government comes in from Washington, D.C., where uh, Washington has obviously no water rights issues, they seized all this land and they, uh, when seizing the land, they would pay for the property, but they didn't pay any uh, money, additional monies to figure out the value of the water rights. And in, in Rio Grande Valley, access to water is basically access to, to, to farming. Like if you don't have water rights, you don't have farming. And so they had basically seized this land and not paid any additional money to compensate them for their very valuable water rights. And this required the government, once they figured this out, the federal government had to go back and refile 200 and 60 or so um, eminent domain lawsuits to say, specifically say, we have bought your property, but we have not purchased your, your water rights. So you can still trade or sell those water rights. But it was a huge, it caused a huge delay and it was just a, an incredible oversight. You said at the beginning, I mean, this all comes down to you guys were looking for stuff to cover because of the talk of President Trump's border wall agenda. Do you see mistakes? possibly being corrected do you see this as something where they'll look back at 10 years ago and go okay that was a mistake that was a mistake and they could correct this assuming they go forward with that agenda or is this a concern um, among the people down there that this happened once and you know some of these things could happen again Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's no, there's no question it could happen again because, uh, like I said, what was, what was really intriguing about this story was that the federal eminent domain law made it completely possible to do this. There wasn't anything illegal done here. I want, I want to stress that. We didn't find any kind of illegality here. They were, op- they were able to, to swoop in and, and file a lawsuit and on that same day take your land from you and begin building 24 hours later. And that's the power of the, of, of the federal eminent domain law. The different and, and what we, we highlight or we try to highlight the story is that's unlike any other uh, eminent domain law which now exists in the U.S. because um, most local uh, states and agencies that use eminent domain have reformed the, the, the laws in some way to make it easier on the on the landholder to represent himself to get a fair price for their property, etc. Nobody's going to say that those are perfect systems, um, that they have solved every of the, all the very emotional issues involved with the government taking your land by force, but they're certainly uh, more attuned to the needs of landholders than the federal eminent domain law is. And so between 2008, uh, when I don't, nobody really has ever pointed out the, the, the flaws down there, so I think our story, one of the, the, the things about our story is it really kind of dug into the, the, the federal law which allowed this to happen and, and, the, and the features of that law that made it so easy to do this. And that law hasn't been changed a, a, at all. I mean, Congress made one small effort um, a few years ago, uh, 
President Bush at the time, uh, also at the time issued a kind of a declaration saying that we should be better at um, taking land. But there's been no actual legal action at all taken to reform the, uh, the federal eminent domain law. Now, this might be a little outside the reach of where you guys were reporting or, or how you were reporting, but uh, when you talk to these people, did they say at all whether the fence has been working, it was, we appreciate that they did this, or is part of their anger maybe that they got it, their land taken for something that hasn't worked? What has the reaction been on the actual fence being in front of their properties or on their properties? So, so that's a really good question, and, and, and I, can, I can tell you what it is. We didn't focus on that so much, on the efficacy of the wall, because we were focusing more on how uh, the, the land was seized in the first place. And what I'll tell you is that from dozens and dozens of interviews down there, there's very mixed reviews. Uh, so there are many property owners who had a fence built across their property who previously had had trouble with um, immigrants coming into the country illegally, uh, drug dealers coming across their their farms or their their properties, and that the fence cut down on that activity locally. You know, and so their front yard, or their backyard, or their farm is safer now than it was before. Uh, and I we heard that opinion a number of times from from both sort of wealthier farmers, but from you know ordinary folks who were tired of having to look out their front window and see some guy with a bag full of uh, marijuana or drugs running across their land, or tired of having seen women and children who were exhausted and tired and frightened uh, um, sort of coming across all the time. So, uh, but that was not everybody. There were certainly people who felt like uh, the, the fence was a complete failure. I mean, it, it doesn't cover actually all that much territory. There are big gaps in the fence that where either because the government um, hasn't finished its project down there or because they weren't able to buy a certain piece of land uh, for any number of reasons. There are huge gaps in the fence. So, you know, if you go down there, you'll see a very uh, imposing fence. It'll suddenly end and for you know hundreds of yards, there's there's you can just walk across uh, swim across the river and then, and then walk in the United States. Well, yeah, and I actually saw that on on Google Maps. If you you can actually go to Street View and see that. And I was wondering, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, but you just answered it like that. That that seems like well, you just walk to the end of the fence and then you walk in. <laughs> I mean, the fence literally ends uh, at many different places. You're, you're absolutely right. It's always stunning to see. I mean, there's some, some, some are like, you know, small gaps where there's supposed to be a gate built and they're still building those gates. I mean, it's 10 years later and they're still building those gates. So those aren't finished, but there's also just more inexplicable um, parts where the fence just stops and there's nothing that, that, that comes you know, you'll have like a hundred yard section of fence, but nothing on either side of it. Uh, and that just speaks to the haphazard nature. It speaks to the lack of planning. Um, it speaks to the rush job that all this was that, uh, those gaps exist and they're exploited. Uh, now, Border Patrol will tell you, the folks in Border Patrol will tell you that at least some of those were intentional in the sense that um, they wanted to funnel uh, illegal traffic towards certain points. So in other words, instead of having to patrol the whole border now, they have to patrol those openings where um, would be the most natural place to cross into. Uh, I don't know. So that, that, that's our explanation for at least some of those places are designed to direct more... Um, people coming across the country illegally into certain spots where they can just basically, you know, sit and watch those spots and, and do a better job of interdicting the uh, entries. 
What were your What were your final takeaways? I mean, when you when you went and researched this and reported this, I mean, this was a huge amount of time you probably dedicated to this story. Uh, what What were your takeaways? What were the takeaways of your fellow reporters down there? And and I guess secondly, what do you want the reader to take away from when they when they really dive into this? So for me, the most important thing was that I, I, I'm not saying the federal government. Um, doesn't have the right to seize land from from private property owners. Uh, that's clear. It's it's useful. It's done great things. We've built national parks using eminent domain law. We've built the Supreme Court was built using eminent domain law. But what I wanted to point out was that you can have a much more equitable and much more just system. And the the, the states, which are you know Republicans like to say this, the states are the laboratories of democracy. The states have done that. The states do have have changed their eminent domain laws over the years. So the the takeaway message here is that the federal government law is particularly insensitive to the needs of Americans who are about to have their lands taken, and that the federal government can quickly and easily change this law by adopting some of the measures that have been taken by the states in their approach to eminent domain. Again, I'm not going to say like every. I'm not going to say any state has has you know solved this problem, but they've gone much further in terms of being um, addressing the rights of American citizens to their land than the federal government currently does, and that's the, the, the takeaway. The takeaway is there's a federal system in place um, that was was used abusively and unfairly. It has not been changed at all, and so uh, if, if a new project is done you will almost likely face the same sort of abuses and inequality as existed back in 2008. When you hear about what President Trump is proposing and stuff, is is he saying anything about going back and fixing some of those parts in the wall that have already been built that, you know, as you said, they're just sort of random holes in the wall. There are gates that haven't been built, this and that. Is that anything that he's talking about? Or when he says he's going to build this wall, is he just adding to areas that haven't been built at all yet? Is he going to, is he planning it? You know, does this plan have any cleanup work in it? So, um, as you may be aware, president Trump, uh, has not delivered a lot of specifics on the wall and what specifics he has delivered has often, often changed. I do know that within the department of Homeland security, um, there is an absolute belief that they're going to go back and plug some of these holes, um, and, Still put in gates to sort of fill some of these areas that, um, that have openings. Um, they have identified, or they've already identified sections in the same Rio Grande Valley where they're going to put this wall. Interestingly, though, what you haven't heard a lot of talk about is, okay, what about this issue of seizing private land again? Because, again, there's no way you can build a wall, I'm talking about President Trump's wall, in uh, South Texas without seizing uh, private land. Um, so, uh, all we know, the only discussions that has occurred at all about eminent domain is that in his initial budget, um, President Trump added or, or called for the addition of a number of Department of Justice lawyers who specialize in eminent domain. So that would indicate that at least somewhere along the way, he, his administration at some point in time believed they were going to have to dramatically step up their ability to, to seize private land. And we also know that President Trump himself has spoken to the general issue of uh, takings laws, of, of eminent domains law, law, because he's had some experience, as a developer, he's experienced it himself. He's tried to seize land from uh, people who are um, private citizens near products he was developing, and he has called, he's almost been praised 
cringeworthy about uh, eminent domain laws, you know, allowing, he calls it almost, he describes it almost as like a lottery. Like, if you get your land seized, if you're smart, you're going to get tons of money uh, as a result of that. I would argue that our stories show that that's actually not so, and that there's a lot of flaws, uh, but President Trump himself has been almost uniquely uh, amongst the, the candidates uh, for the Republican nomination last year, uh, two years ago was in support of uh, eminent domain. And is this is this private land along the border problem, well, not problem, but situation, and I guess depending on who you are, if you're the federal government, you might consider it a problem. Is that specific to the Rio Grande Valley? I, I, I think... Our borderlands, like in Arizona, for example, those are those are more public lands, right? I mean, is this more of a specific problem to South Texas that you have to deal with eminent domain and private lands on the border where you might build that fence? It's it's almost exclusively there are there are parts of both Arizona and California and New Mexican borders which are in private lands. Usually, they're they're big ranches, um, cattle operations, but uh, the the bulk of the the, the bulk of the problem is certainly in Texas, all along, not, not just at the Rio Grande Valley, but from, you know, basically El Paso all the way down to Brownsville. That land um, is almost all entirely in, in private hands, except where there's like a national park uh, or um, a wildlife refuge. And so, and, and also most of the, I mean, Texas is as long as a thousand, half of the U.S. border uh, is, in, is, in, is in Texas. Um, so, and it's also where there's the least bit of the least amount of wall has been filled in. So Texas is just going to be ground zero for any effort to extend uh, the border fence that is there. Um, it's going to be ground zero in any kind of effort to take more land from private citizens. So it, it is um, a mostly Texas issue, although you will see scattered cases in, in other states too. Wow, well, this is going to be really interesting as we move forward here. I mean, a story that you guys uncovered from, you know, the from ten years ago, uh, coming up again in this administration. It'll be interesting to see what adjustments get made, if any, and and see if uh, see if any improvements can be made for the the situation and for the experience that these people have down there when it comes to the government coming in and and, and taking the land. Yes, I think so. I'm, I'm really grateful to you for sort of publicizing it, because I, I do think it's going to be a, a sleeper issue that's going to come up, and everybody's all going to say, like, whoa, 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 what's, what's happening here? What are, what are these letters of declarations of taking I'm getting in the mail? This is a series of stories that if you, if you get that in the mail, you should be reading up on these before you respond. Thank you so much. All right, Rex, thanks a lot. I appreciate it.